0: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. You can listen on DAB, on Smart Speaker, on the Times Radio app, or at times.radio, basically anywhere you uh, normally listen to the radio, you can listen to us too. Right, coming up on today's episode of the podcast, it's Monday, so in a moment we'll have Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Liberacee, as they've been dubbed by one listener, they'll be uh, picking up the news, including whether or not Jeremy Hunt should be allowed to rejoin the Cabinet. Then we'll speak to Philip Normal, Britain's first out HIV-positive mayor. I'll be speaking to him about um, his hope that by being public about his diagnosis, he might help to reduce the stigma, but also his concern that pubs, in particularly gay bars being shut, has made life particularly tough for those come into terms with their sexuality and then because sometimes these things all just come together perfectly he's just designed the cover of the new album from sophie ellis bexter and we'll speak to sophie ellis bexter about a, a new campaign to tackle loneliness and of course kitchen discos but first here's rachel sylvester and libby purvis Right then, let's uh, focus on the matter in hand. I love it when two columnists sort of uh, columns collide like this. So, uh, Rachel, last week you wrote a column speculating about a possible reshuffle and suggesting that maybe Jeremy Hunt uh, might might be in in line to stage a comeback to the cabinet. And then you take a right swipe at him today in your column, uh, Libby. Uh, So, first of all, you make the case for the defence, Libby. Why do you think the cabinet would be better with Jeremy Hunt in it?
2: Oh, I've got to make the case of the defence. No, no, sorry. Like, Let's start with Ra- right Ra- make-
0: Rachel. You, yeah, you make. You start <laughs> first. You start first. Why should well, Jeremy I Hunt just- be in the cabinet?
3: I just think you need to have the best people on in the Tory party in the Cabinet. And at the moment, it feels like the Cabinet's been appointed on the basis of their Brexit view, their loyalty to Boris Johnson. Uh, and I interviewed Chris Patton a few weeks ago, and he talked about it, you know, it's a Cabinet of nodding dogs. And actually, you want, particularly at a time of national crisis, you need the most talented, the best brains and the most competent. Uh, and I think Jeremy Hunt does fit that bill. He is competent, um, and he has a sort of way of not rubbing people up the wrong way. He ma- he managed to calm down the health professionals who were absolutely furious with the government previously. Um, so I suggested that he'd be quite good to come in as education secretary, um, replacing the hapless. Uh, Gavin Williamson, who all prime ministers seem to be absolutely terrified of because he's got a tarantula and sort of vaguely menacing. <laughs> but I thought he could go back to the whip's office um, and Jeremy Hunt would be uh, very well placed to do that job. And my point is just that you he was basically left out of the cabinet because he had stood against Boris Johnson for the leadership. And it was a sort of vindictive um, swipe at a rival, putting down a rival. But you've really got the B division in the Cabinet at the moment, a lot of them looking around that table. And you need it to be the top of the Class A division uh, to to be running the country right now.
0: I think, actually, didn't he offer him a job? He offered him defence and he turned it down because it was a bit of a step down from being foreign. But now maybe maybe after a spell on the back benches, he might, he might be willing to settle something else. He then Libby, in, in your column today, you point out... Uh, The um, failures on his watch when he was health secretary, we had... Uh, the lowest proportion of intensive care beds uh, in Western Europe. Uh, most of them were full. The uh, exercises, for, the exercise sickness in 2017, was largely ignored. We didn't have a stockpile of uh, PPE uh, yet. Um, uh, we were <laughs> we were subjected to what you call the hindsight pieties of Jeremy Hunt. So, do you think he? Do you think, it is quite interesting how he doesn't seem to get any blame at all for uh, Britain's preparedness for a pandemic?
2: Well that was just my point I was trying to point out uh, apropos something else how incredibly good and tolerant and and understanding Britain has been, that there's been very little sort of catcalling about the fact that he was Health Secretary, the longest-serving ever Health Secretary for six years um, during the time the NHS continued to become so unprepared and so underfunded and understaffed. But I don't mind him going back into power. Oh, okay. I probably learned his lesson. I mean, people did, you know, there was a lot of hindsight parties and they were a bit irritating. Uh, but, no, I <laughs> absolutely agree. I'm sorry to, to disappoint, but I agree with, with <laughs> Rachel. We just need some really good people with a proper hinterland and who 've got a sort of a sort of strong experience to come back uh, and and argue with the Prime Minister and just be a bit more grown up than the present lot who have been recruited from too small a pool of um, people who agreed with the Prime Minister about Brexit. Um, but there are also, I mean, there are very good people down on the back benches who are not really getting very much credit, you know, or um, being ignored. I would like to see some interesting promotions. I'd like to see Danny Kruger, for instance, who started a very good prison charity. I had dealings with him then. I think he's a good and clever man. Uh, we should be hauling up some good talent from the back benches, whether or not they are sort of dedicated Brexiteers and fans of Boris. I mean, it's really important to get the best people.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, uh, Sorry, Rachel, that sometimes the speculation about having a reshuffle, uh, you know, we get very excited about it. The public tend not to notice. But actually, one of the impacts of the uh, pandemic and the, those daily press conferences when they happened is that the public does have quite high awareness of lots of members of the Cabinet, whether that is... Uh, Pretty Patel or Alok Sharma or George Euston. You know, they'll have views one way or the other. But actually, it does mean that were Boris Johnson to uh, remove some of them and promote some new talent, people might it might actually have some impact on the sort of public consciousness in a way that, that previous reshuffles, which, you know, was a you know, debate about whether or not Justine mm. Greening was replaced by Damien Hines, perhaps didn't get the nation talking in quite the same way.
3: Yes, and also, prime ministers can use a reshuffle to send a message and set a tone. So, the other name that um, I suggest it would be good to bring back, and, and I gather, is a, is a sort of quite a real live um, probable option, is Sajid Javid, who was, in my view, shamefully ousted as part of the sort of bully boy vote leave Dominic Cummings regime. Um, he was basically told he had to fire all his special advisors and um, come at, under control of Number Ten, uh, and he. He said he couldn't do that. And then he, you know, he was effectively forced to resign. Um, so to bring him back would send a message from Downing Street that this is a new regime. We are now more open minded, tolerant. We've got a wider range of views. We'll have people who aren't afraid of independence uh, and sort of standing up for their departments and standing up to the prime minister i think that's incredibly important that's how you get good government and now i think you're absolutely right particularly after the pandemic what people want is competence you know they're not interested in ideology or you know brexit wars what they want is to feel that the country is being properly competently run uh and a a cabinet you're not he's not going to be able to reset the government without reshuffling the cabinet i don't think
0: Well, let's um, focus on uh, on one cabinet minister in particular, Michael Gove, not content uh, with overseeing Brexit preparations, keeping the union together. He's now he he managed to find time to fire off 2000 words or something for the for the Times on Saturday. He wrote the weekend essay uh, defending the government's um, handling of coronavirus. Uh, But Libby, you've latched on to one aspect in particular in your your column in The Times today. Uh, now ministers hold the key to our homes. And it was a very, it was sort of very stirring, um, quite moving piece, I thought, about how we ca- the fact we can't let someone into our own homes is actually having a massive impact on us.
2: Yes, and I think it's different. I mean, uh, it's interesting, below the line this morning, um, there seems to be a, a sort of big uh, debate between people who find Michael Gove unbearably annoying and people who find me unbearably annoying. <laughs> Uh, good morning, Dr. Higgs. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Higgs, by the way, says you'll be giving you'll, you'll probably be giving me a, a, a get, letting me get away with it lightly on the Chorley program, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, not challenging me. So please challenge. My central point was that there is a real difference between controlling and limiting public spaces and businesses which is the correct business of government and telling people who they may or may not let into their home. They could have said, look, one visitor at a time, immense care, enjoying immense care. You know, as uh, people have people are able to be very careful inside homes. A lot of people are. All last winter, when I was neutropenic under cancer treatment, you know, we were incredibly careful in the house and incredibly careful when people came in and out and were full of sanitizer before anyone else was. And I think a lot of people have that experience. A lot of people are careful. A lot of people are scared. But to lay down a rule on who you may or may not let across your threshold into your Englishman's home, Mrs. Castle, I, I do find this different. And I wanted to make that point. A lot of people are very angry with me about it, saying, oh, no, everyone will die. But actually, I, I do think there is a difference between taking that liberty away and controlling businesses and public spaces. It just feels like a step, a, a very different step to me and one which we shouldn't be taking quite as lightly as we are.
0: What do you think, Rachel? Because I mean, the the problem is there is a massive sort of impact on mental health and not being able to, you know, meet other people that you don't live with who are frankly sick of the sight of. But then there is also a health impact, isn't there? And it does seem as if the worst uh, way to spread you or the easiest way to spread coronavirus does seem to be people hanging out with each other in their own homes.
3: Yeah. And the, the thing I miss most is seeing friends, you know, so I could give up the pub or theatre or restaurants even but actually having friends over for a meal and sort of chatting increasingly raucously into the evening or you know a long chat over coffee with a friend in the morning those are the things I miss most um, but uh, we, you know we're social animals but the problem is this virus uses that sociability against us doesn't it and it's, it's when we interact with other people that it becomes the most dangerous with all the implications for the NHS as well as life um, And health. Uh, So I agree with Libby about the sort of principle of what we miss or what I miss, but I'm not sure really whether the government has got much alternative.
0: I I suppose that's the problem. But it does the the very small bit of being able to socialise somewhere, and I don't, you know, whether it is in your home or out. That's the thing that I mean. I'm currently planning to go and sit in a beer garden on Thursday night. Come rain or snow or whatever it might be, <laughs> to go and see a couple of mates that I haven't seen for 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 weeks and weeks, and it's you know that will. Ha- I've been looking forward to it so much.
3: Yes, but and there is an illogicality. So you know, people are allowed to have a business meeting in a restaurant. People are allowed to. I, I don't. You know, you're allowed to have people to come into work in your home, a plumber or window cleaner, or whatever. um But you're not allowed to meet friends. Where and it is it's meeting friends that. That sort of matters most to us all,
0: doesn't it? Oh, Libby, I've just caught up with your your friend online, Doctor Timothy Higgs. He's a real charmer, isn't he? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, absolutely. But the point is, that we, we have to, we cannot just make, um, you know, we, we can't sort of make excuses about it for the lucky, for us. I mean, we are, we are all, I think, fit to go outside into the freezing cold and converse with our friends out there. And we do, you know, and some of us can kind of maybe can go, go to a theatre or, or a cinema when they're open, whatever. There are lots of people for whom really the one thing which comforts them Maybe at the end of a long shift in a key worker job, or maybe because they're living alone, or maybe because they're a single parent, is to have somebody who isn't necessarily that one person in their one vital bubble, which might be their mum or whoever, somebody come and sit at the kitchen table, you know, as the dusk falls at quarter to four in the afternoon and just be able to talk to them. And to be told legally you may not do that just feels to me a step beyond, a step beyond what is reasonable and, and what is, what is in the interests of liberty. Mm.
0: And I suppose the...
2: I, talk, I,
3: I was talking to one MP just now who said, you know, we, everyone thinks of this COVID thing as a seesaw between health, you know, lives and livelihoods, but there's, it's almost like a propeller with a third seat on the seesaw, which is public compliance. And there is a danger that if you Sort of do things that people don't think are reasonable and rational and are not, you know, sustainable. Then they won't. They'll just ignore it, and it's easier to ignore it in your own home than in any other place, actually. So there is a danger if they push it too long. This that people will just not take any notice, and then the sort of whole system starts to break down.
0: Yeah, and ends up the whole thing uh, ends up backfiring. Mm-hmm. I suppose there is a, a thing as well, isn't there, Libby? That we are now in a position where the government mm-hmm. is deciding who. And this is the point you make in your piece: it's deciding who you can and kind of can't let in your home. And we know this is for coronavirus right now, but it sort of sets, a, it sets the bar quite high for what future governments can, you know, can do and the way that they can interfere in, their li- in our lives.
2: I think it. I think it absolutely does. You know, there is a sense of everybody being put on one of those, those tags. You know, one of those offender offender tags. Uh, that it that it's a problem. But I mean, I do. I I take the point. It's it's all serious. The one thing I find psychologically interesting is I think this is all this panic now is partly because of Christmas and partly because it's of because of the vaccine. Everybody thinks it's just over the horizon. We're going to get a vaccine, and therefore, I think if we weren't going to get a vaccine, if there was no chance at all. Oddly enough, all the rules would be relaxed very much because people would think, oh, what the hell, this is just going to happen. Uh, so I think the, the business has got to just cling on for the vaccine, cling on for the vaccine, and never mind what liberties are set aside in that cause.
0: That was Libby Purvis and Ray Sylvester. Up next, we speak to Philip Normal, the Mayor of Lambeth. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorley. Now, tomorrow, December the 1st, is World AIDS Day. So, I've been speaking to Philip Normal, who was the first out HIV-positive mayor in the UK. But we've also spoken about his day job as a designer and his role in the new album from Sophie Ellis-Bexer. So, here's my chat with Philip Normal. You made history when you became mayor of Lambeth in the spring I this have. year.
4: Yes, I have. I was also the first mayor to be sworn in virtually okay. and so no, I'm not, a mayor of
0: not just sworn in virtually you were the first you, you you had to because we were right in the very depths of of lockdown you couldn't even get the chains of office sent to you
4: no so I had to make my own <laughs> um so as you mentioned earlier I, I am I'm an artist by trade and what a coincidence you've got Sophie on later and uh, I made my own chains um in my studio. Uh, and I auctioned them off for my chosen charity, and the Museum of London bought them. Oh, so, did they? Yeah, so they're going to be in the permanent collection at the Museum of London.
0: And so, just explain. Just explain. So, normally they'd be a sort of gold uh, affair with a big sort of dangly thing on the bottom. Just explain what um, uh, how your chains of office uh, looked after you made them.
4: So they were rather colourful. Um, they were. It was printed fabrics,
0: and um, yeah, you'll have to visit the, the <laughs> Museum of London. Visit it? the Museum of London when it when it reopens. So um, let's uh, let's focus on uh, the fact that you, you you met, like I said, not just because you were you're doing it via Zoom, but you're the first out HIV positive uh, mayor. Yes. Uh, what? Why did you take that decision to be uh, to be open about that? Well, it's not a title that I
4: would take as a badge of honour because I think in fact it discloses the stigma that people living with HIV um, have had for far too long um, and it's in, in my opinion uh, the more people in public life disclosing their status, I'm not saying people should feel they need to disclose their status, um, that can only, it can only be a positive thing in tackling the stigma around HIV um, and improving public health
0: what sort of reaction did you have um, having taken that decision? I was quite
4: shocked. I thought I was going to face some sort of backlash in a way, um, some sort of online abuse or something. But the response was astounding and so wonderful. And it was also global. So I, I was getting messages from all over the world from people, individuals, organisations saying, this is great, you've done a wonderful thing here. So, yeah, it it was quite an emotional time.
0: How how long uh, had you known that you were HIV positive before you took that decision to be public about it?
4: So I was diagnosed in 2005. Um, So I've been living with HIV for 15 years and I am perfectly healthy and undetectable on medication. So by undetectable, that means um, when somebody with, living with HIV is on antiretroviral medication that's, that's working and they're undetectable, it means that there aren't enough copies of the virus in the body to pass it on to somebody else. So undetectable means untransmissible.
0: I mean, that's an extraordinary sort of development. In uh, I know we've you know we've, we're constantly talking about the speed of developments in science, you know, with vaccines and all that sort of thing at the moment. But it's a sort of overlooked. Do you think it's a bit overlooked? The sort of the advances in medicine that have been made in treating HIV. Well,
4: this is where the stigma comes in, doesn't it? Yeah. Because we don't talk about HIV enough in our communities, and if we are going to Get new infections down to zero. We need people in our diverse communities talking about HIV, and quite a lot of them are not because of the stigma around it. So we need to get rid of that stigma if we're going to get infections down to zero, which, by the way, is scientifically possible, and we have the tools to do so.
0: And I suppose we've all become experts in, you know, the uh, reproduction rates and spreading of, of uh, illness and all that sort of thing. So, so we should all be, you know, talking about it. It's, it's just a disease that, get, that gets passed on, and we just need to try and stop that happening.
4: Yes, you would think so, wouldn't you? Um, and we, we, are, we are getting there. We are getting there. Like, people are... For example, this morning, I did a, I, I did a school assembly, in, in in the borough and um, virtually safely. Of Obviously, course. of
0: course. <laughs>
4: and the head teacher mentioned that tomorrow is World AIDS Day, and I I I was a bit taken aback because I, that's great, that's that's great, and um and and she linked it to COVID and how you know our scientists are wonderful and yeah. You know, just just saying World AIDS Day in the classroom, I think, was a great thing. So the improvements have, have definitely definitely ma- been made.
0: Where do you think the last sort of uh, hurdle is in terms of tackling that stigma? Then, because like you said, you were you were obviously nervous before coming out uh, as HIV positive, and then actually the reaction has been um, quite positive. So wh- what do you think? Where do you think that the root of that stigma still lies? Uh
4: well um I think it's just because of the way the virus um affected people and the way in the 80s the media um obviously had um some really horrible things said about HIV in the media in the 80s and it's a hangover from that I think so we we just need to dis- discuss HIV Basically. Um it's it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a virus. Um and yes, I'm I'm glad you mentioned COVID too, because because um it's one of the things that, that COVID has shown is that the the weakness in our public health infrastructure in this country um needs to improve. So I think, you know, if this government wants to build back better. Then I think public health would be a great place to start.
0: I was, I was just thinking actually that, um, and I, I was a bit young, but I remember um, uh, having seen it since, and other people talking about it. But that that uh, advert in the nineteen eighties with the sort of the big tombstone with AIDS, written on yeah. that 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 it was such a powerful uh, advert that it is really ingrained in people's minds, isn't it?
4: Yeah, yeah, it stayed with us for generations, hasn't it? Um, I was I was really young too. I was born in nineteen eighty two. So
0: oh, so was I. Oh, excellent! We we <laughs> <laughs> we're both very um, young, is what we're saying, but other yeah, much the, older people young. can remember it. <laughs>
4: um, yeah, so yeah, it's that sti- that stigma um, lingers around? We need to we need to get rid of it. Um, I welcome tomorrow the the Independent HIV Commission, uh, which is out tomorrow on World AIDS Day, um, and thanks to the Terence Higgins Trust, the National AIDS Trust, and the Alton Aid. Elder John AIDS Foundation for making that happen. And what we're saying in that is, well, partly stigma is one of the things we need to get rid of in order to tackle this virus. But the aim is to get zero cases of HIV by 2030. And like I said before, that's scientifically
0: possible. And you hope that, you know, that some of the lessons we've learned from uh, um, the last few months is that you throw enough resource and, you know, political will behind something, um, then uh, something is, is achievable. Let's move on, because like you said, you don't want to just be, you know, you are the mayor of Lambeth and that, that, lots of responsibilities uh, come with that. So, so what, what's in your, in your intra at the moment? How is Lambeth being affected by uh, the coronavirus, the, the economic effects and everything that's followed?
4: Oh, in regards to COVID nineteen, um, it's had a huge impact. Um, our response as council has been been excellent, um, and I, like all boroughs, I think it's it's been a real challenge.
0: And obviously, uh, uh, hospitality has taken a big hit—pubs and bars and that sort of thing. And you, you've got first hand experience. You worked behind the bar for quite a long time, didn't you? I
4: did. I did. You've done your research. <laughs> you? um, I worked. We just give the impression
0: and... <laughs> it's been thrown together, but we do. We do do a little bit. <laughs> I worked um,
4: for ten years, actually, in a pub, uh, a wonderful bar called the Retro Bar, um, which is just off the Strand. And I, I started working there when I was eighteen, and it was. It's you know, it's this cute little alternative gay pub, and it just became a home from home. And this is what our LGBT venues are to a lot of people um they're so important it was a safe space and it was a space that i could grow and develop and sort of work out who i was i just moved to london and you know it, it was a scary scary place you know everything's new and new and exciting but i needed that safe space to grow and find out who i was so we need to protect these these venues they're more than pubs our LGBT pubs. Um, so, especially in Nambeth, we, we, we've we've given our LGBT venues grants to help them get through um, through this. But yeah, it's going to be a real challenge.
0: And do you worry about uh, young, you know, people who, are in your position, you know, uh, maybe in their teens or early 20s, coming to into terms with their sexuality and not having had in the last few months? That opportunity, you know, if they're at home and maybe they, you know, there's tension or whatever. Do you worry that they haven't had those opportunities to be able to go somewhere, like you said, a a safe space um over the last few months?
4: I really, really do. And uh, my chosen charity um as mayor is the Albert Kennedy Trust. And they work with um young people to support them if they're facing homelessness. Now, young LGBT people say the majority of them say that the main reason they become homeless is because um, issues at home with coming out. So during lockdown, we've had young people that have been trapped at home. Yeah. And um, that's been really worrying. And, you know, there are helplines out there and they've been busy. They've seen a huge increase in people. People ringing them for support. Um, so yes, not having these venues, not having these safe spaces, has been really hard on on young LGBT people.
0: Yeah, no, I, I could I could totally appreciate that. But all being well, I mean, the trouble is, then you can't um, mix in in the pubs uh, from uh, this week, even when they reopen. But. Hopefully, there might be some of that some of that support there. Let me talk about your day job uh, as well, as an yeah. artist and designer. And like I said, we've got Sophie Ellis-Bextor on the show later, uh, and you. It all links up perfectly because you've designed the cover for her new album.
4: I did. Um, it was such a joy to work with Sophie on this, um, and I'm I'm really happy with the result. It's been so so much fun, um, and we did it all during lockdown too. So. We couldn't actually get together in the same room and go through ideas. Uh, so we had to, uh, we had to zoom each other, um, to have, to have meetings about it. So that was really hard because normally when you're going through a creative process like that, you sort of need to be together.
0: Exactly. Yeah, the the, um, the joy actually of doing Times Radio is that we have at least been able to come into the studio and you know and talk to colleagues because if you yeah, that whole ideas process is so much better in person than it is over over zoom and your um your uh you you, a lot of your t-shirts that i've been looking at there a lot of them are quite political aren't they uh whether it's (laughs) about uh brexit or um things that politicians have said or the lockdown and all that sort of thing um uh which is your which is your current favorite uh t-shirt design oh that's such a hard question (laughs) um who's Um, your favorite who's your favorite child is basically what i'm asking you
4: (laughs) oh my favorite t-shirt at the moment um, you might have to come. I might have to have a think about that.
0: Okay, well, well, well to come to let me. me ask you then about. There's one with uh, present but not involved written on it, which is obviously uh, famously one of Jeremy Corbyn's uh, um, uh, responses. I can't even what it was about. Now was it laying the wreath? I think it was lay- laying the wreath that he, he claimed think he was. Pre- so. he was present but not involved. Um, ha- what, what do you make of uh, of the, how the Labour Party is doing right now? I
4: am. Um... Feeling really positive, um, and that's that's the that's all I can say really. I I, I love being a, a, a Labour Party councillor, and do you yeah, do, you, do you I, love I it? I feel like we're going in the right direction. Do
0: you love it more now than you did when Jeremy Corbyn was leader? Uh, in all honesty, yes. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, uh, there was also there was another one that I really liked on your. I basically spent this morning when I should have been you know uh, reading the papers, just trawling through your. Um, your uh, website there was one of rosina alan alan khan's uh clash with matt hancock wasn't there about um, yes. how's my tone how quickly do you do, do obviously you know, they're hugely popular t-shirts do people actually buy them do these um, political uh slogans you know get the cut through that people do do actually want these t-shirts
4: yes they really do um the funny thing about the present but not involved one is that I think people buy that one without realising what it's referencing. <laughs> and they just and they, they they buy it to where where to the office in, in, in the meeting. Oh uh, of course amusing. not
0: realising that it's it really actually embroiled in some very complicated thing to do with anti Semitism in the Labour Party. Well, yeah. you know, as long as, as long as people uh, as long as people are buying, I don't suppose it matters. Just fine before I let you go, I, I you're a dog owner, aren't you?
4: I am. How yeah, important. I have a French Bulldog called called Noah. How important is it, having
0: a dog been to you during lockdown?
4: Oh, I think everyone's enjoyed dogs during lockdown, haven't they? Um, he's he's been great, um, and he's kept us company. But well, he doesn't really do much. He does just sleep all day.
0: But, well, yeah, my yeah my dog's much the same. But you know, it gets <laughs> you out of the house, and you know, you can speak to another dog walker from a distance and all of that, which is one of the few uh, few joys we've got left in life at the moment. Yes.
4: Um, yes. Also, before you let me go, go on. Um, I've teamed up with the, the Terence Higgins Trust to do a charity T-shirt. Oh, you're doing it? Oh, r- right. So you're doing a
0: charity T-shirt.
4: Yes. So uh, £20 uh, per sale goes to the Terence Higgins Trust to help tackle HIV. Um, so if you go to the Terence Higgins Trust Twitter or my Twitter, which is at Philip Normal,
0: there's links on there. That was Philip Normal there speaking to me. And just because these things all come together perfectly, he was just discussing designing the album cover for Sophie Ellis So here's my chat that came later with the woman herself. We'll talk about kitchen discos in a sec. But first of all, let's talk about how you've coped over the last uh, few months and how how difficult it's been for a lot of people.
1: Well, yes. I mean, I think, you know, I have been one of the lucky ones. I've been uh, spending this year with my favourite people. So I have my family in lockdown with me and... You know, if I was going to choose on a bit of paper who I'd be stuck indoors with for weeks on end, it would be them. But even with that, you know, I, I've I've found aspects of this year incredibly tough. And I think we're all probably thinking about the you know the most vulnerable people we know this year, aren't we? And the people that aren't maybe seeing as many people as they'd like. And so yes, that's why I was really keen to get behind this campaign because loneliness is is such a chronic thing and. We're entering into the hardest bit of the year, I think, actually. I think the next few weeks are going to be really tough in January, February. So if we can all kind of keep an eye on people and form a little community, I think it's a really... It's got such, so many benefits for
0: people. One of the really striking things, you uh, gov, the polling company, do a poll and they ask how have you felt in the last uh, week. And um, if you look back over the last, all the way back to sort of the middle of last year, almost consistently, 18, 19, 20% of people say they're lonely. And actually it barely moved during um, the uh, the lockdown. But, it, you know, the worrying thing is it even before that, one in five people saying that they they felt lonely. What would you, what is part of this campaign? What are people being encouraged to do to try and help those people who are, are finding this time especially tough?
1: Yeah, so earlier in the year, um, the NHS set up something called Check In and Chat. I think it was started from the first lockdown back in March, um, but it's still going strong. So the other day, I had a chat with a guy called Owen, who lives up in Scarborough. We spoke for about 45 minutes. Um, Owen doesn't really see very many people, he doesn't have very much, he's got not very many friends and family close by to him so he said he goes sometimes a few days without seeing anyone at all um so we just had a chat on zoom and we were making each other laugh he was telling me his jokes he's extraordinarily. I mean Owen's in his late 50s and he's 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 joined TikTok <laughs> during the pandemic as a way to kind of reach out to people but you know we just had a little chat and it's it's all about I suppose finding the common ground really I mean the one thing that has come out of this year that's quite extraordinary is we've all experienced this massive icebreaker, really. You know, if, if you want to start a conversation with someone you don't know very well, you can just ask them about this year. You can chat about what's been going on. It's something we are all affected by. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, if the figures haven't changed that much this year over who feels lonely, you know, we've still got quite a long way to go. And I've obviously we've got hope on the horizon with the vaccine. But I think now that, the, you know, sort of, adrenaline if you like of the pandemic first kicking off and being in the springtime is quite different to the bit we're in now where you know it's still rolling on we're heading into winter this is this is quite a a tricky bit i think
0: and obviously social media can play a part in whether that's talking on zoom and that sort of thing or watching discos on instagram (laughs) explain how this came about and it sort of snowballed into a a whole new industry
1: so back at the beginning of the the first lockdown, um, I felt quite useless actually. Richard and I were both musicians, my husband and I. We had all our work cancelled, obviously, like loads of people. We were at home with our five kids, feeling, you know, some some bits good, but also there was a lot of stress, a lot of tension. The news was very heavy. So we did, as a family, something we often do, which is have a bit of a party. But my husband had the what I thought was a completely crazy idea to actually live stream it. So on my Instagram, we did our first gig at the beginning of the lockdown on a Friday night at 6.30. I sang a mixture of my songs and covers. I put on a sequin catsuit. We got the disco lights up. And then it gave us such a big lift that we just did it every Friday night. And through that, we formed a kind of community, really. We called them the Kitchen Discos. Uh, it gave me an opportunity to... dress up to choose some covers to sing some songs to have a bit of fun with the kids they would put on silly outfits and now we do them every once in a while we're going to do one for christmas we do one for halloween but yeah, they're just fun, actually. It's been a very good tonic because there's not been a lot of daftness this year, but there was plenty of our kitchen discos. Oh, pretty sure.
0: Yeah. We, we, <laughs> we've had one or two uh, kitchen discos in our house as well. And uh, we had Philip Normal on earlier. Um, uh, ah. and he, it all, you know, it all links up perfectly. The, um, he designed the cover for your new album. How did that come about?
1: So I've been a fan of Phillips for a little while actually. I bought some of his t-shirts before and we sort of became friends and you know, was very happy from when he became mayor of Lambeth. And uh so when I was doing the artwork for the album, I just said to him, I would love to work with you. Are you up for it? And uh it's so funny how things go really, because the album only came about because of the the kitchen discos itself anyway. So I ended up doing this greatest hits called Songs from the Kitchen Disco, My Singles and Richard, and my husband, had taken a photo of me at the end of our last one, um, I think it was after we'd done like two and a half months of Kitchen Discos, a picture of me in our, our playroom, which was also our stage, I guess, and then I gave it to Philip, and he turned it into this beautiful artwork where I'm sort of stepping into another world, a, a, a disco psychedelic world, He's he's a brilliant artist, I think, Philip, he's got such a good vision. <laughs>
0: Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Time subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.